0: Welcome to episode 74 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, politics, and
1: culture. I'm Peter Oedji. And I'm Peter Lim, and we're delighted to continue our tradition of interviewing current presidents of the African Studies Association. Our very special guest today is Dr. Abdi Samatar, ASA president and a professor of geography at the University of Minnesota where he has served as Chair of the Department and Director of Graduate Studies, and where he teaches courses on Islamic world geography, Southern Africa after apartheid, environment development and globalization. Dr. Samatar has been interviewed widely about Somalia on the BBC, Al Jazeera, PBS, and many other media. He received a PhD from UC Berkeley in 1985, has twice been a Fulbright Scholar and was a Herskovitz Award finalist for his wonderful book, An African Miracle on Botswana, published by Heinemann in 1999. Among his uh, many other works, The African State, Reconsiderations, edited with his brother Ahmed, articles in Review of African Political Economy, the International Journal of Somali Studies, and a very stimulating recent article in Third World quarterly entitled The Dialectics of Piracy in Somalia, the Poor Versus the Rich. His current research focuses on relations between democracy and development, ties between democratic leadership, public institutions and development in East and South Africa, as well as Islam, social capital and ethnicity in the Horn of Africa and environment. A general thread in his research is how public institutions enable people in developing countries to tap opportunity in the global capitalist economy and avoid its cruel traps. Lately, he has also been working on the many kinds of pirates off the Somali coast, and we will discuss that presently. Welcome, Dr. Samata. With pleasure. Well, perhaps we could start with a little on your own background for the listeners. And I was intrigued that in your first book, which was on uh, rural transformation in northern Somalia, you have this story about a camel.
2: It's a tradition in pastoral cultures, particularly in the Horn of Africa, where children who are born uh, to parents, of course, are presented with a gift, uh, an asset hopefully that will see them through difficult times in the future. And the she camel, which my parents presented, was called Mander. And the purpose was that by the time I come of age as a pastoralist, that I will have that uh, she camel will have produced enough uh, sufficient hair of camels that will become the starting point of my life, so to speak. Uh, I could not tell you where that uh, she camel has ended, but it certainly lived long enough for me to see it when I was in high school. Mm.
1: And after high school, you, after high school, I came.
2: I, I served as a national service teacher in a primary school in Somalia. Then I went to prison under the military regime of Somalia at that point in time for three months. After which I left the country, came to England, where I was a factory worker in a steel factory. Then went to the States, to the University of Wisconsin, and then Iowa State University, and then University of California. Uh, where i did my phd and then i was hired as an assistant professor at the university of iowa
1: and turning to the politics of piracy off somalia your presidential lecture yesterday here at michigan state was about explaining this phenomenon or should i say phenomena because you identified actually four different kinds of pirates i think we often have a very simplistic understanding in the west and maybe in some parts of Africa, about this situation. Could you elaborate on on this complexity?
2: Peter, I think there is a misreading, whether it's by design or default, I don't know which one it is, but that there are Somali pirates who are uh, wreaking havoc in the Gulf of Aden and the Indian Ocean and that these people need to be brought to the boot, so to speak. What we found out when I was visiting that region where quote-unquote the pirate is more active is to see that actually the process that the piracy business is much more complex. That we were able to see people who were trying to defend Somali fishing resources against fish pirates who are coming from all over the world. Uh, we saw or at least we read about what we call political pirates who were the first to come to the to the sea uh, fighting against sea ad that military regime at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And then of course uh, so you have what we call defensive pirates which are the fishermen who are protecting their territory. We have the fish pirates who are coming from overseas, Taiwan, Japan, Singapore, India, South Korea, China, and, uh, Tanzania, Italy, Spain, Holland, Belgium, and so on and so forth, who have come to these untapped resources which are protected by nobody within the Somali territorial waters. And then, uh, of course, there are the ransom pirates, which everybody talks about and which supposedly include everyone in these categories. So we have four types of pirates, but academics, journalists, and others who have written about this have deliberately decided, in my opinion, to ignore
0: all of that and then just simply focus on the ransom pirates. One of the journalists who I think has done some of the most intriguing work on the pirates of Somalia is the Canadian Jay Bahadur. Uh, Of course his book is entitled The Pirates of Somalia Inside Their Hidden World and he was able to go and literally hang out with uh, what you would uh, call ransom pirates for the most part, but he also has a nuanced analysis that involves very much the exploitation of their fisheries as one of the major causes, and, and also the political breakdown of Somalia as an enabling factor. The lack of a coast guard, for instance, is mentioned as, as, as one of those enabling factors. One of the fascinating aspects of that book is Badur's description of how the ransom pirates' missions are financed because according to the author it's quite a sophisticated operation involving some of the richest somali business people who to me sounded like venture capitalists of sorts and they're not even just based in somalia they're also based overseas it also reminded me of how some of the slave voyages of course were financed by europeans in the 18th century so can you tell us a little bit about the financing of the of the missions by the ransom pirates and what it reveals about the current state of, of Somalia. Right. Uh, Peter, uh, ransom pirates started as copycat pirates,
2: copycatting, if you like, or duplicating what the, pre, what the defensive pirates were trying to do. Defensive pirates were fishermen, by and large, and sort of individual remnants of the old Somali Coast Guard, who were seeing sort of a flotola of fishing fleets come to the sea within literally three or less miles of the shore, which is where the fish is, by and large, because that's part of the continental shelf, and loot that fish day in and day out, year in and year out. And I was able to actually see those sort of flotillas myself when I was there in 2005, just before the tsunami. And so they saw that the fishermen were chasing these ships they can, came to recognize criminal elements came to recognize that something like thirty thousand ships ply the Gulf of Aden hmm. into the Indian Ocean or into the Red Sea, which is carrying commodities from East Asia, petroleum from the Middle East, uh, the Gulf of uh, sort of a Persian Gulf, and so they realized these are sitting ducks, and therefore we can make our day by exploiting these folks and then of course they uh, individual human beings, such as sort of a, yet owners, are caught in that, such as the British couple, which are mm. referred to in some of these uh, reports. Once they realized that they hijacked a couple of ships, the ransom came $3 million in the first instance, and then $1 million, they realized this is an industry they can exploit. And so the claim in the book that some of the richest people in Somalia are exploiting this and becoming venture capitalists is actually inaccurate. I know that at least the 10 richest people in the country. Personally, I know them. These are people who are in telecommunications, people these are in the money transfer businesses, but there are individuals who are in the Middle East, particularly in the Gulf, uh, the Persian Gulf, in Dubai in particular, and then some unknown characters in Europe, particularly in London. And these are the folks who are acting as the venture capitalists. So if you look at the structure of these ransom pirates, you have three categories. One is the kingpin, the investor, so to speak, who, if they get $3 million on a particular ransom, may take a million and a half. Then you have the middlemen who actually run the operations, or what you will call shop floor managers, who sort of recruit young men who are in these ports in in Somalia, uh, who manage the day in and day out affairs of the ship that's being held. And then you have the foot soldiers, who by and large get peons, And many of these are recruited as child soldiers, in my opinion. I've seen some of them. One of them I just met in a court case in Japan three weeks ago. So that's the structure. But we have yet to identify the very individuals who are doing the investments, whether they are in Dubai,
0: and there are non-Somalis also involved in Mm. Italy Mm -hmm. and in the United Kingdom. But it sounds like a very sophisticated and internationally networked, Business, which is something that counters the general image of the pirates of Somalia as being an intensely local uh, network of people, that that again the logics of business are very much driving this, even though the causes are are those that you know of desperation in many cases, defensive or otherwise.
2: Right. You see, Peter, what you have is you know entrepreneurs are, quote unquote, whether they are legitimate or illegitimate ones, scan the surface of the globe at whatever level and see things that other people see as ordinary mundane things and can smell opportunities, criminal or otherwise. And so what these folks have done was so they saw several sort of fishing fleets and non-fishing ships that were hijacked by, by defensive pirates, who by and large did not ask for ransom. And so they realized, aha, here is an opportunity. That these fishermen cannot see, or these coasts, all the former coast guard cannot see, and if we take them, ask for a ransom. It might the, the ransom may be three million dollars, four million dollars, five million. It's never over seven million dollars. Has been so far. And if we are able to take our cut, we can take 50 to 75 percent of that. There is no individual risk to us. They sort of farm out the risk or subcontract the risk because the folks who are killed are the middlemen and the foot soldiers. And so these guys are well uh, sort of ensconced in their comfortable apartments and places in the United Kingdom or in Europe or in the Middle East. That's the way it operates. But what most reporters who are the people who are the eyes and the ears of ordinary people across the globe write about are the mundane operations at those
1: lower levels. And yesterday you had some very interesting comparative statistics on these ransom amounts and the amount lost to the Somali people by the, what we could call the fish pirates or the resource pirates, I think it was quite a big imbalance.
2: That's correct, Peter. What you have, uh, if you look at the estimates of how much ransom pirates have taken, which is what the world focuses on, at their best years, in the range of maybe 50 million, 60 million in their best year, so if you aggregate that from two million five hundred thousand dollars, most of the ransoms that they take is no more than a few million dollars. The sixty million, when you aggregate all of that, is the large number of ships that have been hijacked. But if you compare that to the value of the fish that the resource pirates, which are Taiwanese, Japanese, Indian, Chinese, Korean, sort of Spaniards, Italians, Tanzanians and so on, Egyptians and so on and so forth. The estimates are in the least year, you may be talking about $200 million. And in maximum years, you may be talking about $450 million. So if you average that out, it will be about $300 million. So if you look at $300 million over a 20-year period, we are talking about $6 billion. Mm -hmm. That's a huge amount of money for local livelihoods. And if that money could be accessed by the Somali people, they wouldn't need international aid at all. So the scales that the international community uses are so prejudiced against what's being looted from the Somalis, and therefore ignore that, and then still expect the Somali people to come and support international interventions, which are targeted at piracy per se.
1: And visually, you showed in, in, both in your article in Third World Quarterly and your talk yesterday. You getting back to this earlier pattern of the criminal networks. You showed across the tropics, from the Straits of Malacca in Southeast Asia, through to uh, uh, off the Somali coast in East Africa, the off the Niger Delta in Nigeria, right across to Colombia. Within the tropics, these patterns of piracy. So it's clearly not just a Somali phenomena, although the media regrettably often talk about Islamic uh, pirates or Somali pirates. So we might get back to these questions of stereotypes later, but you also mentioned that you'd seen with your own eyes these fish pirates or resource pirates, and I was wondering about what alternatives are there for the resolution of these piracies. How can we uh, resolve these issues, do you think?
2: One of the first things to note, Peter, is that the first "quote-unquote" Somali pirates uh, acts took place in 1989. This is what we call the political pirates. There is a group called Somali National Movement, which now dominate or have dominated the northern part of that country, who were fighting a resistance war against the military dictatorship, and they were the first ones to target ships that were flying in the, sort of on the Somali coast, who were providing provisions for the Somali government. And they took those three, uh, sort of, I think two or three ships in 1989 and 1990, and then they went out of business once the, once the government collapsed. So the first thing to note is that there were no piracy on the Somali coast when there was a government in the country, although there were pirates, pirates operating off the Malacca coast, where there is the government of Indonesia, Singapore, and Malaysia, and so on and so forth, in the sort of a Gulf of Bay of Bengal between India and Pakistan, Bangladesh. The governments of India exist, the government of Bangladesh exist, but pirates operate there. If you look at Nigeria on the west coast, that's exactly the case. If you look at Colombian coast, that's the case. So the only place where pirates appeared after the collapse of the state is Somalia. And there you can see what the solution is. If you have a Somali state of the kind that can sort of be sovereign, dominant over its territory, there will be absolutely no pirates. So the international community, to resolve this issue, in my assessment, is to support the Somali people, put a state together that's of their own and that's accountable to them. I'm quite confident if that assistance is given for Somalis to do that, then the piracy of the coast, uh, of the Horn of Africa will be
0: eliminated quite quickly. Can you assess the impact of Western and particularly US and perhaps British, Reporting on Somalia for us, it seems to me that what most Americans know about Somalia comes from you know Black Hawk Down, mm-hmm. for instance, mm-hmm. with all its problems, mm-hmm. but it, it seems like the media coverage has really shaped the perceptions mm-hmm. that people have of Somalia today, mm-hmm. so that they 're unable to see the political and the economic dimensions mm-hmm. and I think it's important for various reasons. Seems to me this is how one can justify the intervention of, for example, the Navy of the United States and many other countries that are now patrolling right, mm-hmm. uh, the coasts off mm-hmm. of, of Somalia, even though it's been rather ineffective in, mm-hmm. in stopping this. Right. So can you tell me about the media coverage mm-hmm. and your perception of it, interpretation of it, and also how maybe it plays into the international response to the crisis in the Horn?
2: There are two ways to sort of skin that question. One is the media coverage of the piracy. The other is the media coverage of the political process or lack like thereof in the country. But before I go into either of these things, I think it's important for particularly American citizens to know the amount of money we spend on this project. There is a base in Djibouti, a na- neighboring state, uh, where we have a base with the French and the Germans and everybody else. The cost of that minimally is $500 million a year, minimally it may be actually approaching a billion dollars. And if you see what the cost of the ransom pirates is, then there's a great deal of proportionality missing here. A billion dollars versus the cost, few uh, less than hundred million dollars by the pirates. And I got to this uh, sort of a quote from a colleague of mine that the amount, the number of cars, the cost of the number of cars that are hijacked and stolen in the United States, what the ransom pirates take, is 1% of the cost of the cars that are stolen in the United States per year. We don't send the Marines to the streets Hmm. to make sure that those cars are stolen because it doesn't make any sense. So the kind of reporting that takes place, one, doesn't cover that at all. The cost to the United States of these operations and to the Europeans for that matter. Why they are doing this given the fact that the uh, the cost-benefit analysis tells us that this is nonsense, nonsensical. So that's one reporting. The second element that we don't hear about is the fact that Somalis are said to be clan people or tribalistic, and that this clan is at loggerheads with this clan and so luckier with this clan. If we were to use that kind of analysis covering the United States, we will become the ultimate racists in this country. So the Polish cannot see eye to eye with the Norwegians. The Germans cannot see eye to eye. American Norwegians, Polish Americans, and so on and so forth, black Americans, and so on and so forth. But we are able to say that about other people and are not kept accountable. So the image the population in the United States get from this reporting is a country in which people are Byzantine, they hate one another. And therefore, there is no possibility that uh, this is a political question that must be resolved politically. That's the first part. The second part is about what we, our involvement is here. We are supposed to be helping Somalis. We Our interventions are supposed to help Somalis. But my assessment of the last 20 years, at least the last 20 years, is that our interventions has been actually to subvert. Somali civic agendas that are trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together. For instance, there was a time in 2006, after Maudisha has been in mayhem for 16 years, that a group of Somali religious people got together, called the Union of the Islamic Courts. I was in Mogadishu debating with them at that point, trying to help them think through the issues. And then I met with our Assistant Secretary of State at that point in time, Dr. Jendai Fraser. What I saw these people were trying to do is, first of all, they chased the warlords out of the city. So the city was at peace at last without any help or any support from the international community. It appeared to me when I met with the assistant secretary that we were quite unhappy about the peace that has been restored in the country. And hence they gave the green light to the Ethiopian government who are our allies to go and intervene and demolish that. This is how Al-Shabaab, the so-called terrorist group, came to the surface. So it's as if our own either bad policy or ill intentions have produced the crisis of terrorism today, which we are sort of deeply engaged on. It's as if we needed to create these people to be able to fight them. That's the image that the reporters provide to American citizens, which in my opinion belies the facts on the ground.
1: Coming back to that uh, question that you raised of the conceptions or misconceptions of clans, it seems to me that there's sort of theoretical or academic aspect of this as well. And yesterday in your lecture, you critiqued the prevailing orthodoxy in how outsiders, including apparently the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi and, and perhaps some African scholars, see, tend to see Somalis through the lens of clan, and you took on the guru of this paradigm, I. M. Lewis, and himself had moved through the hierarchy of British colonialism and, and, and went through the anthropological schemas to create this intellectual apparatus that has it that we can only understand Somalia through clans. And so talk to us a little more about clans and the limitations of this perspective, because I think it's important.
2: I had the fortune or the misfortune, Peter, of actually being in a British court with Ian Lewis. He was the expert witness for a group, and I was the expert witness for the BBC World Service. Lewis's claim under the British law are that Somali genealogical groups are different races and different cultures, which went straight against his earliest book. So there has been a transformation in Lewis's intellectual project. At a time when he used to talk about Somalis being the most homogeneous people in the world, to the point in 2001 when he tried to argue in a British court case that Somali genealogical groups are different ethnics and different races, and he couldn't explain how is it they speak the same language, how is it they have the same faith, how is it that that they share the same general pastoral culture. He couldn't. This is what he said 30, 40 years earlier, but then he reneged on that because now the global political project on Somalia could be sort of milked, so to speak, professionally if you articulate your sort of analytics on the basis of clans and differences. So what they have been doing from then is to accent the differences among Somalis rather than enhance their commonalities. So for instance, I was in Nairobi, I think it was in 2003, if I'm not mistaken. The gentleman who was responsible in the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi wanted to have lunch with me. So he sent his uh, sort of assistant to make an arrangement. So we met in an Indian restaurant in Nairobi. So as we met on the, on the table before we sat and we shook hands, he said, good afternoon, Dr. Samatar. And I said, good afternoon, Mr. So-and-so. And he said, could you please tell me what your clan is? Hmm. So I was stunned, absolutely almost froze because I didn't expect that. I said, uh, you are the US government representative here, aren't you? And he said, yes. And I said, I am an American citizen, and our laws in the United States suggest that you cannot ask people of that if you are dealing with them at a public professional level. And he was taken aback a little bit. He said, you know, don't joke around, Abdi. Tell us who you are. So I said, well, I'm a Somali-American from Minnesota. (laughs) So if you want to dig into that, that's fine with me. And then he said, well, you know, this is, so I said, listen, Glenn, his name was Glenn. If that's the project you invited me for, I don't think we need to have lunch. You, your mind seems to be set up. And if you, I was using this same kind of language in America, I'll be calling you a racist or ethnocentrist. And then at that point, he stopped dead on his tracks. And then we finished lunch politely and then went our, our separate ways. Then the, three weeks later, I met with him on the what's called the Somali National Reconciliation Conference, which was taking place in Nairobi. He and the UAE observers were the ones who were pulling the strings under the table as to what becomes the agenda of this Somali conference. And so they argued and said that we have to split them into clans and representatives of clans. And then the following day, we had a dinner in, a, in the golf club at a place called in, in Western Kenya where the conference was taking place. And so I listened to these gentlemen and I said, you know, you t- they talked about the agenda and the agenda. And said, so I said, who gave you this mandate? to be setting the agenda for Somalis who are supposed to be negotiating between themselves. And so they said, no, no, Abdi, this is an ethnic problem. I said, no, 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 this is a political problem, and we have to find political solutions. They were completely dismissive. Six months later, they came to me. literally sought me in Nairobi and said, We were wrong. Can you help us? And I said, the genie's out of the bag. It's too late now. The warlords are ready to kill everybody else. And so you have to own what comes out of this, because you have cooked the origins of this in that meeting in the Kaga Gulf Club in Eldoret, Kenya. So this is the kind of mindset that prevails in the American Academy on Somalia. Very few have escaped this. This is the kind that prevails in Europe, and to some degree that has infected many Africans who buy into that project. The trouble here is. If you accent people's differences all the time, then that begins to take a life of its own in the minds of politicians and policymakers in places like Washington and London. And that's what they have been pursuing. And that is why the problem internationally seems to be irresolvable. Because it's, you are starting with the wrong premises that rather than bringing people together to sort of accent their commonalities, to bring communities together, you are accenting the differences and therefore fueling the fire of the civil war that has prevailed in this country for the
0: last 25 years. A kind of 21st century reinvention of tribalism. Absolutely.
1: Maybe we could bring the discussion to an end with maybe something looking ahead more hopefully. we. In the Somali lands today, we have a failed state. We have shaky projects for Somaliland in the north and Puntland in the northeast. And as you've mentioned, international misunderstanding and a, a lack of the responsibility to protect. Perhaps, um, how would you uh, like to see the future develop? You mentioned the political projects, and there are still possibilities to, as you say, put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And, and maybe even if we have time, we could, you could comment on. the in all these troubles that have beset your people, what about the resilience of the people, their cultures, their poetry, the way that they manage to still survive in the face of all of these issues?
2: You know, Peter, it's one of the mis- my misfortunes is to have met the Assistant Secretary of State for the United States in 2006 when I came back from Odisha after I have talked to the Union of Islamic Courts. And I said, here is an opportunity where the international community has to do very little in terms of cost, finance and otherwise, to support this process and to ensure that it's not derailed either by quote unquote terrorists or by us so that the Somali people can come out of this sort of a a purgatory, so to speak. And they were completely dismissive. And so my sense here is the hope in this place is that Somalis, when you go across the country, and I have done that, they understand what the problem is. What has failed is not them, it's both the political leaders, the warlords, the tyrants, who want to retain things as they are because that's how they make their money, so to speak, and their livelihoods, and an international community that's so marooned to what I call intellectual laziness, not try to make an intellectual effort, to understand the genesis and the dynamics of the problem to be able to provide an appropriate solution for, for, to help these people. So the hope is to begin to listen to the Somali people and to accent their commonalities. I'm quite confident if that's done. And if they are given the space and not manipulated within those spaces of freedom, that they will be able to come out of this as one country. Remember, after all, Somalis were the first Democrats in Africa, where there were democratic change of government several times before anyone else. Hmm. So 1967 was the last democratic change of government in Somalia. The next democratic change in Africa, following that, was 25 years later in Zambia, when Kenneth Kaunda was kicked out of office democratically. So these people have done the democratic project. They are capable of doing that. What is necessary is to give them a little boost so that there is a free space in which they can sort out their things. They don't peep other people to do things for them. They can do it themselves, but they need assistance. So that's the first thing. And the peace processes in places like Somaliland, in the, say, in the places like Puntland, tells you a little bit that ordinary people, can be able to restore peace in their neighborhoods. The Somali land people, if you so to speak, or the Somalis in that region, have been able to do that. People in Mogadishu did that in 2006. People in Puntland did that 2007. And when you talk to them, it's like talking to Peter and Peter. There are very few differences at all. And you have those kind of differences in every nation and in every society. So that's what needs to be done. The final thing I want to say here, Peter and Peter, and the two Peters, (laughs) is really this, that although Somalia is depicted as a place where there's impoverishment and there are no resources, my own academic studies on fisheries, on livestock, and farming suggest to me that there's no need for poverty in this country. There are enough resources in this country if properly organized and utilized that ordinary children of every family can have enough food to eat and enough resources to be able to launch their lives. The international community and the African Union, in particular, tragically, the African Union, who has been sort of a playing second fiddle to the United States in its creating mess in this part of the world, they can make a difference by telling the international community, let's something, start something quite different than we have done so far. And I think if that's done, Somalis are entrepreneurs. They will rise to the top. So if you look, for instance, where I am now, currently in South Africa, there are refugees that have gone to that country in the last 20 years who had nothing but the shirts and the skirts on their backs and bottoms, so to speak. And what you see today are in those individuals, some of them I know personally, who have major stores of their own in places like Johannesburg, in places like Cape Town, in places like Port Elizabeth, in places like East London, starting out of nothing, absolutely. And so, and you have people in telecoms in Somalia, they have the cheapest telephone systems. What is lacking is the kind of leadership that can put institutions in place so that people can fly.
1: Dr. Samatar thanks very much to, uh, for talking to Africa Past and Present. It's a pleasure. Africa
0: Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters and Social Sciences online, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Our producer is Annette Jamino. technical assistance is provided by the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod.aodl.org. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other show sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. Hey.